You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Thanks, Lord. You are the God who does things not according to the way we say you should. Lord, you have brought about an exciting thing in bringing about a young man whose desire is to serve you with his life and minister to your church and people. And you brought it about in a way that is not typical, not traditional, um, but is biblical. And we praise you for that. We pray you would protect Kat and Dustin as they go down this road, that you would keep the evil one away from their family, that you would empower them with the Holy Spirit to do your important work for your glory. We also pray out and cry out for Corey, Lord. Remember in the way that he has worked for you, uh, that he walked for you, uh, that he devoted his life to you, and Lord, give him more time, we pray. Remind us throughout the week um, to pray for you, and we ask you to do another thing that only you can do and open up his lungs to be able to breathe again on their own. Lord, as we look at how Paul prayed for the Ephesians, his last message to them, one of his last prayers to them, would you teach us how to pray for other people? Lord, because we want to pray biblically, we want to pray effectively, we want to see you work and do things. We want to see you intervene in this world. Help us to align our prayer life with the way you tell us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week we were looking at the unity in which Paul gave up his freedom for and gave up his prosperity for, gave up his popularity for, the unity that that we are all in the family no matter what our race, gender, class is. But that and amongst the other things that Paul has been talking about, it's not always easy. If it was easy, we'd see a whole lot of healthy, stable churches out there, but we don't. And so Paul is now going to say, and I love in Paul's writing, he's like continuing his thoughts. He's, he's just like, some people look at my run-on sentences and say, whoa, but Paul like has run-on thoughts. God is giving him run-on thoughts after thought after thought. And so he starts out our text today for this reason. For what reason? For the reason um, that he's just been talking about. He's going to pray some things for the Ephesians today so that they can have unity, so that they can understand uh, just just how supernatural the body of Christ, so they cannot personally understand how God has reconciled them from their death, from their deadness in their sin. And so I want to ask you a few questions. If you've got the bulletin, if you've got a piece of paper, pen, write it down, that I want you to think about as we look at Paul's prayers. The first question is, do you pray for the people when you say you will. When people bring prayers to you, do you actually follow through and pray for that? Second question is, how do you pray for people when they come to your minds, when they bring their requests to you? And the third question is, does the way you pray for them line up with the way God says to pray for people? So do you pray? How do you pray? And does it line up to what the Bible says is? And I want to answer the first question, how that affected me. Because I asked myself 
that first question a long time ago. When I came a Christian 14 years ago, it was like year one or year two, and I was learning about prayer, and I was uh, interacting with Christians, uh, and, uh, and I started to realize something in myself, um, that I was mimicking a lot of the behaviors that I was learning in the church, and that was is that when we say we're going to pray for somebody, a lot of the time, I don't actually go follow through and pray for them. They say, oh, this is going on, I'll pray for you on that. And then I go and I get busy and my life gets, uh, you know, other things in my mind and I forget to pray for them. And then I see them again and they remind me, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for that. And then I don't. And so on and so forth. And so I developed something that I've tried to carry on uh, throughout the last 12 or so years. It's that when a prayer need is brought to me, I pray right away, right there. Like not 10 minutes down the road, not when I get out to the car, but right there in the place that the need has been presented to me. So if somebody says, I'm really struggling with this, I say, let's pray right now for that. That way I can't forget. If somebody says, can you pray for my uncle or my son or so on and so forth, I stop and pray right there with them there. If a prayer request comes to me, an email or text or phone, I'll pray right there, right then. That way I know that I'm not going to miss that prayer. Why? Because this is prayer is the most powerful tool that the Bible says that we have as Christians to see real change, to see God intervene in the world more than sermons. If it was sermons, we've got so many great sermons on YouTube and on the internet. We have more sermons than we've ever had in the entire history. If it was sermons that changed the world, then we would be a different church. Sermons are great. Uh, Bible studies are great. Ministries are great, but they are not the most powerful weapon we Christians have. It is prayer that unlocks the door between the supernatural and the natural and invites God to come into the situation and do what only he can do. Prayer is one of the only things that can never be taken away from you, ever. They can take away our charitable status number as a church. They can take away our building and put gates around it. They can outlaw the Bible. They can outlaw me preaching the Bible, as did for John Bunyan. But they can't take away our ability to pray. No one can ever do that. It is a weapon that God has given you that is powerful and unstoppable. There has never been a revival over the last 2,000 years that has not been sparked by God's people calling out to God to intervene. And it is our present weapon in the current situations that we see to see God come into this challenging situation that we find ourselves in and do something that only he can do. And the bulk of the prayer today that Paul is going to be doing is what is called an intercessory prayer intercessory prayer, meaning we are mediating, he is mediating on behalf of or in favor of another person to God. He is petitioning God on behalf of someone else, the mediator. Just as Christ was the mediator for our sins between God and man, we are mediating an intercessory prayer between God on behalf of some people. And so Paul talks about this prayer as being challenging, intercessory prayer as being hard. It's hard. It's the kind of prayer we do 
the least often. We often pray for ourselves. It's much easier to give thanks. It's much easier to ask for things for ourselves. But to pray for others is, Paul says, labor. He says, I labor in prayer. He's talking about working. It's a challenge. It's hard. He has to remind himself. He has to work at it. And that's why many Christians don't do it, right? If we're to be honest, because it's work. If I call a lunch and say, there's going to be a lunch at the church, we'll get lots of people out. But if I say there's going to be a prayer meeting, we'll get a fraction of the people out. Why? Because there's labor. But the people we'll get will be the laborers. Prayer is so important that Paul attributes the prayers of the saints to God intervening and giving him the needed power to get through the most difficult situations of his life. He talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. You can read it on your own later. He talks about how he was uh, overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed beyond our, his strength. He despaired life in itself. But because of the prayers of the saints, God gave him the power to get through it so that Paul could carry on the mission that God had given him. Prayer is so powerful. It is the hope of this nation. It is the hope for this town, for your family, for your lost family members. Asking God, pleading on their behalf that he would intervene in their lives. And so there are three parts of this prayer. There is the admiration, then there is the intercession, that's the bulk of it, and then there is the benediction at the end. These are all three important parts of prayer that you can add to your personal prayer life. And so let's pick it up in verse 14. Paul says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Admiration means a feeling of strong approval or of delight with regard to someone or something else. And there's three little parts to Paul's opening admiration towards God. First, he says, I kneel. Paul is showing respect and honor and reverence to God. He's understanding that he's royalty. And, you know, who do you kneel to? You kneel to the queen. You kneel to the king. Well, you kneel to the king of the earth, the king of the heavens, God, the highest authority. Paul is coming with an understanding, whether it's physically kneeling, which is good, or spiritually kneeling, which is humility, that when you come before God, there is this understanding that he is God and he is the ultimate authority. He is not a vending machine. He is not a genie. He is not someone who gives you necessarily what you want, but he is the one who has the final authority. Uh, Don, when we came in on Thursday, uh, I was met by Don, and he said, I really have this feeling, God woke me up, that we should have a prayer meeting upstairs, and we should kneel down and pray before God. And so that is what we did. Those who were able to physically kneel, we got down and we pleaded with God to show him our reverence uh, towards him, and it was a great time of prayer. He is the final authority. And he always gives an answer. God does. I often hear, and I've said it myself, God never answered my prayer. Well, actually, God always answers prayers. Sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. And no is an answer. We often don't think that, right? When we think of God as a vending machine or a genie, we think he always has to say yes. And and if he doesn't do what we said, then he didn't answer our prayers. Well, no, sometimes the ultimate authority says no. Sometimes he says no for a while, and sometimes he says no final. I've been praying about something 
for about two years, specifically, that God would give me uh, direction in something. And so far, he has said no. And maybe that is no forever, or maybe that is no for a while. But yet he is my authority. So Paul starts with reverence. Then he moves to intimacy. He says to his father, wow, that's quite the contrast from kneeling to talking of his father. That's an intimacy and a love. That's the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our father who is in heaven. And and we need to have that intimacy and that personally knowing of God in order to interact in this thing called prayer. You know, it's a, it's a common thought from movies and, and popular culture that you can reject God as the king of your life, as the authority of your life, and yet he's still there to listen and do everything you want, right? And so you can have a person say, God, I really need this job, but I don't want you in my life. And in their mind, they think, well, God's going to do what I asked him to do. But Jesus reminds us in John 9, 31, he says this, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and who does his will. Now, does that mean God doesn't hear the prayers of those who have not called out to him for salvation? No, he hears the prayers. He hears their prayers of saying, God, show yourself to me. God, I I want to know the truth. God, forgive me. God, help me to know you. He hears those prayers. He hears all the prayers, but the ones he listens to are the ones brought in humility, the ones brought in truth. The best thing we can do for unbelievers when people come to us and say, you know, you might have somebody who's struggling with somebody and you might say, can I pray for you? And it's a great thing to do. Ask unbelievers to pray for them. Can I pray for you? Say they've got sickness. Can I pray for you? Yeah, most will say yes. Pray for them, but also pray for their salvation. Pray that they would know God, that he would be their father, their savior. Pray for the healing, but pray for the thing that matters. And the last little part, so he starts with, respect, then he goes to familiar, familiarity, and then he goes to God with faith. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He is the creator. He is the one who is able. Paul understands that. You can't go to God without an element of faith. You can't go to God and expect something to happen when you don't actually believe he is capable or willing or desiring to do it. Paul understands every name, every buddy, the whole world is sustained by God and therefore he is able to do. It is impossible to please God without faith, the Bible tells us. The apostles, uh, they were brought forth a a young man who was full of a demon. Someday I'd like to preach on demons because we don't even think they exist now in our 21st century culture. But just as they existed then, they still exist now. But this father brought his young man who had a demon inside of him and he asked the apostles, can you get rid of the demon? And they tried doing it and they tried doing it, but they couldn't do it. And so he brings them to Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verses 20, 24. And so they brought him the boy and seeing Jesus, the spirit immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he threw to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been with this from childhood he said it often throws him into the fire and into the water trying to kill him but if you can do anything he says to jesus have compassion on us 
and help us. Jesus responds, if you can. All things are possible to him who believes, Jesus says. Immediately the boy's father cried out, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. We need to have faith when we come. And Paul comes with reverence, with love, and with faith. And then he starts the intercession. Now he's going to, he's addressed God and now he's going to go to God with the needs. And he prays this, four requests we see in verses 16 to 20. 16, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his mercy, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. The first thing I see Paul praying for is spiritual stability. Spiritual stability. You notice it's not a primary concern of physical well-being or physical stability. He's, He's not going to their monetary needs or their financial needs. No, no, no. The issue at hand for Paul seems to be their spiritual stability, that he would strengthen them with power. Whose power? God's power, the Holy Spirit. And and where does he want them? To give them super strength so they can lift cars and and overcome adversaries? No, in their inner being. Well, what's he talking about inner being? Well, he's used that language earlier on in this letter. In your inner being. You know, when you strip away the nice Sunday clothes and the Christianese talk that we have, and you know, the inner being is really who we are, spiritually speaking, when all of that is stripped away. Like it's, it's the strength, the, be- the faith, the belief that we have that keeps us stable when everything around is falling apart. It's that true grit and belief that you have in the power and the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's the inner being, your soul. That's how God interacts with it. You can't see it, but it is the thing that magnifies out of you when Christ lives in you. You can strip away uh, your clothes and you'll see somebody's true physical stability, right? Remember in the days of shoulder pads and, and nowadays you, you don't need shoulder pads. People just walk around with their arms out. And right. You can look pretty strong and healthy, but, but if you were to strip away somebody's clothes, you'd see the real stability of that person's body, wouldn't you? I don't think you'd want to see that, but you would, right? You can, somebody can look financially stable, And yet, they can be very financially unstable. You can have a person who say, what are you worth? (laughs) I'm worth 1.1 million. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's your net worth? You mean your real worth? Uh, Well, I have a $60,000 truck. That's what I bought it for. I owe 50 on it, and it's only worth like 35,000 now. Uh, My house, it's it's worth a million bucks. And I only owe 800000 on it. And, and I've got all this nice stuff. I only have $25,000 in credit card for this nice watch and the, this great phone that I have and all these nice clothes. And, and I make the minimum payments of $10 a month and I should have it paid off by 2085. Right? Right? If you strip away all the niceties for a lot of people, right, they're financially unstable. That's what happened in 2008. People were way over leveraged, way too much stuff. And and people started to realize, the banks started to realize, oh, that person's got way too much debt. And so they started to call on these debts and everything started to collapse and a lot of people lost their shirts. 
But Paul is praying that they would have spiritual stability, that they would not be tossed to and fro, that they would not be up and down and all around, that they would be someone who is stable in Christ. Verse 17, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I see him praying for spiritual maturity, for stability, now maturity. Notice he uses the word dwell, that means to live. That Christ would live in your hearts through faith. You know, there's an element of dwelling that is required through stability. You know, they work together. Ask a child who grew up in a very unstable home if they like living in that stable home, where the parents are always fighting with each other, where money is always the issue, where they don't know if they're going to get thrown out or where their next meal is coming from, uh, right, if there's always going to be a blow-up. You ask that child, especially when you ask them when they grow up, did you like living in that home? No, no, I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel comfortable, right? But when you have a stable home, the children want to live there. They feel safe. It is their home. It is their safe place, and now I'm not saying that, that your ability to clean things up is the reason why God will come into you. No, but there is this element of the Holy Spirit living and, and thriving and, and flowing out of you that comes through your stability and maturity, your willingness to allow God to rule you in that inner being, that he is the primary resident of your home, that he is the king of your home, And your home is, his home is, inside of you. He does not dwell in churches. He does not dwell in temples. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a man can commit outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Do you want spiritual maturity? Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want him to dwell in you so that people less and less see you and they see Christ? That is his purpose, to change you into the image of himself. How can he do that without you allowing him to be king in your life? So we need to flee from those things that hurt the heart of God, that mess up things, right? You invite some dysfunctional people to come into your house, and you're going to cause a ruckus in that house, aren't you? And so that's why he says flee from it. Because when you entertain sin, especially sexual sin, it's like quicksand. The more you indulge in it, the more stuck you get. But when you flee to Christ, when he is your person, when the Holy Spirit is the king, well, it builds maturity inside of you. Then he says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints that, sorry, what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. He prays next, I see, for spiritual charity or love. He needs, he wants them to understand just the, the, the bigness of God's love for them, which then 
affects their love for other people. You know, negative things grow pretty easily in your life, in all of life. Look at the world. It's much easier not to do anything, and you'll see a lot of negative things happen. But good things often take work, take cultivation. Take a garden, for instance, if you garden. If you want the weeds to grow, do nothing. They'll grow. You'll have a great garden full of weeds. But if you want vegetables or flowers, something productive to grow, well, there's an element of cultivation that's needed. You have to pull the bad weeds out. You have to turn the soil. You have to feed the soil. You have to give it light. You have to water the plants. Care for it. And it's so too our lives. If you're being fed by the world, it's easy to grow cold. It's easy to grow stale. It's easy when you're not involved and and deeply rooted in God to just become oblivious to God's love for you and to never really grow. And then by not growing in God's love for you, you never really grow in love for your brothers and sisters. And Paul is praying that they would understand the entire package of God's love, that they would be deeply rooted. All right, that's the imagery of the tree burrowing its roots down deep to where there is uh, stability and water, there is nutrition that will weather them through the storms. If you, if you had gotten my um, letter about a year and a half ago during the start of COVID, we had a tornado come through the back forest and ha- like literally half the trees on my f- property fell over because they had very short roots. They were big, long trees, but the roots were only a couple feet deep. And so when the storm came, the big trees just fell right over, and I've been cleaning it up for the last year and a half. And so it is, if we're not deeply rooted in Christ, when the challenges of life come, then he's talking, he's got this imagery of that we would comprehend the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. And that begs the question to you, what is your view of God's love? What is your view of God? Is it one-dimensional? Is it two-dimensional? Do you have a surface view? Before modern submarines and, and the ability for divers to go into cold water and go to deep depths, many sailors didn't understand the magnitude of what an iceberg was. They saw what they saw above the surface, and so they would think they could avoid hitting the iceberg because they didn't understand that 90% of the iceberg was actually under the water. And so they'd skirt it thinking that they were going to avoid it, and they'd hit the iceberg because it was beyond what they could see. And God is so big that he is beyond what we can see or even begin to understand. And Paul is praying that they would understand his bigness, his big love for them and hoping that that will then affect their love as well for others. So he prays for stability, maturity, love, or charity. And then verse 19, he prays, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I see him praying for spiritual capacity for them. You know, one of the things that stuck out 
to me the first time I think I read through the Gospel of John was that Jesus didn't get to tell them all the things he wanted to tell them. The apostles, that is. I remember reading that and I was like, and then I listened to a sermon and I was like, whoa, that's a big thing. Here the apostles were. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They slept on the ground beside him. They knew him in the most intimate, personal ways that a person can know God. And yet Jesus says to them in John 16, 12, I still have many things to tell you, but you are not yet strong enough to bear them. He said that just before he went to the cross. They weren't strong enough. Their capacity was not large enough to be able to understand and comprehend the things that God wanted to tell them. We put it in this visual way. Like this is my hiking bag. It's 100 liters. Okay, so it means its capacity is 100 liters of kit that I can stuff into here so that I can go out into the forest and live and survive and do those things. Just because that's the maximum capacity, it doesn't mean there's not more stuff that I can take if I have more capacity. And so there are bags that you can buy that have far more capacity so that you can carry more into the forest. And God wants these believers to expand their capacity so that they can be filled with the fullness of God. The fullness. And there is so much more of God that we do not even begin to understand that he wants you to be filled with. And so, just looking at these four points of intercession, these four verses, let me ask you the question that I asked you at the start. Like, do your prayer requests for people, the, the, the requests you send to God for people, are they like the ones that Paul is praying for the Ephesians? Do you pray primarily for health concerns with people. It's good to pray for health concerns. We're praying for health concerns. We prayed for many health concerns, but it's not primary. Not to Paul, not to Jesus. Do your uh, prayers for other people, are they about the financial? Are you praying for prosperity financially, monetarily? Again, nothing wrong with that, but it isn't primary. Paul seems to be focused on the spiritual well-being of this Ephesian church. Could it be that our spiritual welfare trumps our physical welfare and trumps our monetary welfare? Well, it would seem that way. Paul closes his prayer with this. First, he has an admiration, then he has intercession, and now he has a benediction. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us, To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is a benediction? That's an old word that, you know, when I became a Christian, I'm like, what is that? It's a blessing. Paul is praying a blessing on them. Something he hopes and desires for them. Well, what is it? Above. He says, look at that word above. Above. We tend to think God has a level, a capacity, right? Like, yeah, that's about as much as I can ask of God. And he's not really going to do anything more. But Paul's praying, listen, listen, I'm praying 
And I'm, I'm praying that God, the God who is able to do far more than you think, will do far more. His, his, his blessings to you will be above what you think he will do. More than even I think I can do, that I think he can do for you. And then he says beyond, beyond. Like, again, we're thinking above, that God can do this much, and God isn't going to do more than that. But Paul's prayer is that he would go above and beyond what we, than all that we can ask for according to the power that works in us. So what's he saying for? Like, I hope God does far more than you ever ask or I ever ask in you. That's a blessing. That's a Paul rooting for you. That's not a, oh, why are you blessing them and not me? That's, oh God, would you do awesome things in this Ephesian church? As I, Paul, go to die for the gospel and lose my head in Rome, I pray that these Christians would flourish beyond anything I have ever seen in my own personal life. According to the work, that, the power that is at work in us. God's desire for us is far greater than we can even comprehend. Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our abilities to understand and believe what God wants to do in our lives isn't there. When, we, when I became pastor, I didn't know much about much. I walked in and there was an empty desk six years ago. And Jeanette was uh, there. And we're like, okay, we need to build this website. And neither of us know much. And mostly her and with some help from me, we built this website to the ability that we could envision what a website was. And then somebody with a lot more capacity that was their thoughts and their abilities were beyond and above what ours were came along Luke Larocque and he built us for free a website because he had just that much more ability to imagine beyond what we could and so true it is that God wants to do in your lives Christians I hope God in all of you surpasses me in every way shape or form I hope he pours out his blessing on you and this church is famous because God lives in his people. Not based off a pastor, not based off a building, not based off anything except God showing his power in each and every one of you. And so do you see his power at work in you? That's a question I want you to think about. Do you see his power at work in you? Because he promises it will be some less than others, but it will be there. If not, a few things to think about. One, are you saved? Have you been born again? Has God changed your heart? Has he given you a desire? Has he saved you from your sins? Have you cried out to him in humility? John Wesley was a pastor, an Anglican pastor, who tried to do a lot of good things to make God happy with him, and yet he didn't have it. And yet he was invited to a Bible study uh, by some Christians who had something that he didn't have and he went there and he heard them preaching through Ephesians and all of a sudden it came alive. He cried out to God that God had saved him not based off his works 
but based off God's goodness. And he was born again. You can go to church for decades and not be born again. Are you not cultivating that relationship? Look at your life. Is God just a passing thought in your life? If he is just a passing thought, you're not going to see him at work very much in you. Or do you have open sin in your life, meaning you're in open rebellion to God? All of those things will hamper God's power at work in you. And so I'm going to pray a prayer for you, kind of based off of what Paul, and then I'm going to take three minutes, and Cameron's going to come up, and he's going to do communion with you. But in that three minutes, I'm going to ask you to pray the similar prayer to the person beside you. And if there's nobody beside you, just look for somebody and go over near them and pray for them. So it's like a minute each person. Listen to my prayer for you and do the same for someone else. Dear God, King of the universe, Lord and Savior of my life, you created all. You are God. You are my Father. I pray and ask that you would help Calvary to have a solid faith in you that they would be balanced and stable as you desire us to be. Give them the ability to know the deep things of you. Put spiritual muscle on their bones. Give them a genuine love for you and for one another. Show them your glory, Lord. Help them to grow deep roots of dependence in you so that they would not fall over in the storms of life. Bless them for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.